Welcome. Uh, once again, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different than uh, our normal uh, time of uh, someone preaching for the past five years. So this is the sixth year on the Sunday after Easter. Uh, instead of a usual sermon, uh, I've opted to do a kind of a Q&A time. And we're going to do that again this morning or give that a whirl uh, called Frequently Asked Questions. Um, this card should be in the pew rack in front of you. As Sue mentioned earlier, for those of you who were here near the beginning, if you have a question that you'd like to still ask this morning, you can fill that out and walk that back to uh, one of the ushers or staff or one of the elders back there, and they will get those up to me. If you would rather, uh, you're welcome to, if you're at home too, or if you're here in the pews and have a question that you'd like to ask that's burning a hole in your heart, you're welcome to email that to questions at waypoint.church questions at waypoint.church, and those are going to be forwarded to my phone this morning. I think we're going to be super tight on time, though. May not get to those, but uh, we'll see about that. Uh, still an open door for you. First, uh, let me pray one more time. Thanks, Jim, for leading us in prayer. And just one more time, God, we ask that you would uh, help us to be attentive to you, and that as much as it's up to us, that we would present ourselves to you uh, as malleable in your hands that we would not seek to dictate, but that we would uh, be at your feet, uh, learning, wanting, growing, being shaped by you into the people that you would have us be. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, as my words are true to your truth, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way, just may they be passed over, forgotten forever. Amen. So one of, uh, I'd planned and scripted a little bit to begin in the scriptures, um, so I'm going to go ahead and do that, and we're just going to see how this goes. I've mentioned last Sunday and a, a couple of months ago that on Friday mornings, the group of men that we gather with together uh, to study the scriptures have been going through the book of Acts. That's been uh, a really good for me, enjoyable, informative, deepening. Uh, two weeks ago, we got to uh, the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, I mentioned that last Sunday morning, so I'm going to start just reading a little bit from Acts chapter 17 as kind of a foundational starting place. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Jump down to verse 16, still in chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's moved on from Thessalonica, as he does in Acts, going from city to city. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, the Agora, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know that what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
And in fact, over and over and over in the book of Acts, as we go through the book of Acts, we see Paul going from city to city, region to region to region, and everywhere there is a synagogue, uh, minimum requirement for a synagogue, 10 faithful Jewish men, Every city where there's a synagogue, Paul begins in the synagogue, and Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us that over and over and over again, he reasoned with the people in the synagogue. He reasoned with those people in and around the synagogue. That was always his starting point when there was a synagogue. All of that to say that the Christian faith is reasonable. The Christian faith is reasonable. We may not be, uh, he may not be what one might expect, Jesus, and certainly not what someone would have dreamed up on their own, but the Christian faith is reasonable. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Christianity is not anti-intellectual, as some have supposed. It is not against thinking. In fact, from my perspective at least, quite the opposite is true. And can, as can be seen from Paul, in Acts, and especially in Acts chapter 17, where he engages the brightest thinking people of his day and of the world. People who spend all of their time, Luke tells us, thinking about such things, debating such things, about metaphysics, about cosmology, about the gods, about all manner of philosophy. And so the Christian faith doesn't have to be the sort of thing where one checks one's brain at the door, so to speak as has been the case in some quarters in Christianity. Rather, the Christian faith does encourage us to engage our minds. In the well-known 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Yes, you know that. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the Christian faith in following Jesus involves the mind. It also involves the spirit and one's emotions, for sure, but it always involves one's mind. When asked which of all the commandments in the Old Testament is the most important, Jesus responded from the Shema, which every good and faithful Jewish person recited by memory at the beginning of every day and the end of every day, uh, and which Jesus said right there, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus substitutes the word mind for the word strength, which is back in Deuteronomy. Love God with all of your mind. And now just a few more thoughts. A lot of opening remarks. Maybe I'm avoiding the questions. <laughs> I'm in inevitably going to give my opinion and or my perspective on some of these. I'm going to try to attempt to answer questions objectively and scripturally when possible, but some of the questions simply want to know or lend themselves to what does Shannon think. Fair enough. I'll try to be clear about that. I think it's also important when we do this sort of thing to acknowledge that some topics and some questions, for some of us, many of us, maybe most of us, want the answer to be what we want the answer to be. Right? I mean, if we're honest. Doesn't matter what the question is, we want the answer to be what we want the answer to be. And in some ways, if what I prayed was true, we've all got to let go of that and trust God and be malleable in his hands with our minds. I also want to note that sometimes Jesus turned questions around on people as I thought about a couple of the questions that we'll look at. I'm not Jesus, of course, but sometimes Jesus answered questions with questions. We want answers. Jesus wants introspection. 
people tested and sought to trap Jesus with their questions, Jesus sometimes returned the favor because sometimes we grow the most or learn the most not by being given answers, but by being challenged to think or to consider or to reconsider, repent, think differently, repent, face things that we'd rather not think, face things that we'd rather not face. And sometimes our questions say more about us than they do about the thing about which we're asking. Is it true? And sometimes our questions are a means of seeking to justify ourselves. And I'm not, this is not criticism at those who submitted questions, or any of us. But sometimes questions are a means of justifying ourselves, as was the case with the teacher of the law in Luke chapter 10, who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I, this great teacher of the law, do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man said, who's my neighbor? And Luke tells us that in asking that question, he is seeking to justify himself. Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And I would also say this, I'm willing to be a part of a church or a congregation in which not everyone believes exactly the same thing. And some people who are a part of Waypoint, this church family, don't believe exactly the same things that I believe or in the way that I believe, and that's okay. And my hope is that we can all be that way, not saying that what we believe doesn't matter because it absolutely does matter. But on secondary matters and non-essential matters, it's okay for us not to be aligned on every single point. Second, if you're, uh, or third or fourth or fifth or seventh, if you're looking for or need to be a part of a church where every single one of your beliefs match up with those of the church or its pastor or leaders or others in the pew or on the platform or some denomination, good luck with that. It's not going to happen. I understand looking for a good match, wanting to feel at home and like you fit in. I get that, but there's always going to be differences. My hope that our love for God and our love for one another and our commitment to a shared mission will be greater than any and all of those differences. To that end, I encourage you to see the varieties of views and beliefs and understandings within a certain range to be part of a beautiful tapestry. If every one of us was the same color thread, the same shade of red, how dull that tapestry would be. But when there's variation, there is also beauty. And I think the church can be like that, is like that, maybe even is planned to be like that the bride of Christ, radiant, as Paul says. The church would not be a place where people who are different, a place where people can learn from other experiences or learn to be with people and love people who are different than oneself if everyone was exactly the same. But the church is a training ground where we learn to love people who are different than us, who see things different than us, who are different than us. I'm not encouraging differences or dissension for their own sake, but where differences exist, I would encourage all of us to engage others in a respectful conversation. Seek first to understand before we seek to be understood. May we listen and consider before we speak, listening first of all to Jesus and then to people, and then always again to Jesus and then also to people. Our goal is not to nurture division, but rather to become more and more a community of prayerful love. To love God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To follow Jesus and to become more like him and in all things to give glory to God and to honor God.
with our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our convictions, our words, our actions, our lives. Okay. Question number one, in the order in which they came to me over the last few days. In what ways is God present and or not present in hell? And I could spend 20 or 30 minutes on this one and I've got about two, maybe one. In what ways is God present and or not present in hell? The word translated in English as hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. It refers specifically to Valley of Hinnon. It was a place, a physical place on the edge of Jerusalem that Jesus used metaphorically and which is used metaphorically quite a bit in the scriptures. Hell doesn't have a location. We need to move beyond the idea, the ancient idea of a three-story universe where heaven's up there and hell's down there and this is right here. Nevertheless, in what ways is God present and or not present in hell? My response would be that God is everywhere. God, by his very nature, is omnipresent. Can God be in hell? Yes. Yes, God can be in hell. Well, then how can people, how does that work? How does that work? If hell is separation from God? It's a good question. I think people lose an awareness of God or a, an affinity for God or an inclination toward God when they are in hell, which is a willful separation from God. I don't wanna have anything to do with you. And so while, while God may be standing facing a person in what we call hell, that person may be standing like this with their back to God. God is still there, but they have chosen and God has allowed their choice to live apart from him. The person who asked this question uh, quotes two passages of scripture, one from 2 Thessalonians and one from Revelation chapter 14, which is a, just as an aside, a type of literature called apocalyptic. Most of Revelation is, the second half of the book of Daniel is, where it's metaphorical and prophetic in nature. We need to read the scriptures as they are in the varieties of genre that they are, and so maybe not meant to be taken literally. Though Jesus is clear about a place that, or a reality into which people go after death who want no part of him. That is called in various places in the New Testament hell. Second question, in the order in which they came to me, what does God say about depression and anxiety? The terms and diagnoses this person writes are new, but the conditions have existed throughout human history. Do we see instances of depression in the Bible? Does God offer hope in the face of it? And so the Bible doesn't say a lot about depression or anxiety, but instances of uh, depression and anxiety ex absolutely exist and are described in the scriptures, which shouldn't be a surprise to us because anxiety and depression are simply a part of the human experience. For many people, most people, along the way in some way. Moses in Numbers chapter 11 just says, God, why did you put all of this on me? I can't bear this burden of leaving, leading these horrible people. I want to die, Moses says. Moses, of all people. David expresses similar emotions. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, similar thing. I can't bear this. I can't bear the weight of ministry. I can't bear the weight of the role that you've called. I want to die. I want to die. Job, Jonah in the fourth chapter, Jonah, Paul in 2 Corinthians 
writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. You can feel Paul's emotion, the depths of his despair. The church probably, though, in, in responding and thinking about this person's question has fallen short in the area of acknowledging the existence and the pervasiveness of depression and also ministering to people experiencing depression, whether short-term or chronic. The church has failed. And why has the church fallen short in this area? Maybe because the church has not known what to do with depression or how it fits into faith, a faith that is supposed to be filled with joy. In addition, there's probably been a stigma attached to depression and the shame that goes along with that that paints people who experience depression as weak or inferior or lacking in faith. But none of that is true. None of that's true at all. Rather, depression, as I understand it at least, is largely a medical and a mental condition that is outside of one's own control. A person who hasn't experienced and lacks empathy may think about someone experiencing depression as just get out of bed, pull up your bootstraps, look at the bright side, but for a variety of reasons, such as not possible for people experiencing various forms of depression, for whom life can be very difficult, who for like Paul and Job and David and Moses and Elijah, all they can see is darkness and hopelessness that's paralyzing. So what can the church do? What can we do? What is an appropriate response to depression among us? Just a few bullets. Acknowledge it. Notice it. Identify it. If someone in your circle may be experiencing depression, engage them with that and engage them about that in a loving and respectful way. If you are experiencing hopelessness, darkness, depression, anxiety, if you're feeling alone, if the world's closing in, by all means, share that with someone around you with a leader in the church, with a counselor, with a therapist, with your doctor, go to the emergency room, call an 800 number. Depending on the statistics one looks at, one-sixth of Americans are taking antidepressant medication at any time. One in six. The numbers are lower for black and American and Asian people, higher for women, highest for women in their 40s and 50s. What is the church to do? Acknowledge, exhibit compassion, pray for those people. Invite them into community and friendship and love and acceptance, encourage them. Help those people find a counselor or a therapist. There are lots of great therapists out there, lots of forms of therapy. Medicine prescribed by a doctor or psychiatrist can be helpful often. And remind the one suffering about the promises of God Peter wrote, cast all of your anxiety on God because he cares for you. We see God caring for people in despair throughout the scriptures and especially in the Psalms. Yes, God cares. God is with us even if the darkness seems overwhelming. Psalm 139 talks about where can I flee? Where can I go from your spirit? Everything seems dark to me. And the psalmist replies, even in the depths, God is there with us. Many years ago, this church started a counseling center, which began, I believe, long before my time, bringing a pastoral counselor on staff. 
kind of ran out of energy over the course of years and while others began to do that better and other counseling services and centers uh, popped up, we closed ours and that's okay. But the farther I go along in life, the more we see, and Jim prayed some of it, that mental illness is pervasive among us and that's not something to be ashamed about, but a reason to seek God, a reason to ask for help and a reason for us to love one another. It may be, at least in what I read, that this is the most difficult time to be a kid. That this may be a more difficult time to be a teenager than any time in the past. Because of the internet, because of social media, because of the phones in our pockets, because of rampant comparisonism that can kill a kid's spirit. But God offers hope. The scriptures point to a consoling God. God cares. Let's be a part of God's plan for healing. Next question, based strictly on the Bible, how do you believe the church and its members should react to the transgender movement? Oh, we're out of time. <laughs> the person's question is about the movement. Uh, I don't know about the movement. I, I'm not sure there is a single monolithic movement, though we all know that transgender has come up much more uh, in recent years than probably uh, most of us were privy to in our lives. So in that sense, there is a, a movement. Uh, I don't think it's a monolithic movement. I uh, have experienced and read about and seen different forms of people coming to express transgender some of them painted as militants, some of them painted as Christian. It's been painted in a variety of ways. So I'm not sure about uh, a movement or how members of a church should re respond to a movement. I'm not an expert on transgenderness or transgenderism, though I got the questions. I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a sociologist or have much experience in this field have a little bit of knowledge about the Bible. The way back when I was in seminary, I'd never heard the word transgender. That was nothing that ever came up, something that never came up. To the best of my knowledge, the Bible doesn't say anything directly or explicitly about what we call today transgender. And transgender apparently isn't, again, monolithic. Being transgender or identifying as transgender can mean a variety of things and take a variety of forms, so it's a challenging discussion. If I was pressed to go to the scriptures, I would go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Six verses later, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Do you see the complexity in interpreting and the importance of knowing context because most of us are wearing clothes right now that are poly cotton blends from leviticus 19 same book of the law do not wear clothing woven of two woven of two kinds of material and yet we all do Scholars look back on these passages and understand that there was a particular context, and we've talked about how context is always important. And part of the context, or most of the context, may have been distinguishing the people of Israel from those around them. 
no big deal what kind of clothes you wear, but distinguishing them because they were always God's set apart people, set apart, set apart, set apart, and needed to be distinguished in every way. There was nothing holy or unholy about polycotton blends, but they needed to be distinguished, especially from the gods of the people around them who maybe encouraged the dressing up of people and genders that weren't their assigned genders from birth. My response is always also differently to love people. I think Jesus gives us that general and overarching direction. And we should stop and catch ourselves at any moment when there's anything but love and goodwill intended for other people when we ask questions like this. I'm aware that uh, of the cute idiom that says about uh, how we engage people, we catch them, God cleans them. Go and be fishers of men, we catch them, God cleans them. I ask myself uh, as I've thought about transgenderism and loss that I don't understand and certainly haven't experienced, why are people transgender? And when people ask me questions like this, I sort of start there. Well, let's start at the beginning. Why is someone transgender? Why are people gay while most are not? What causes someone to be transgender? I think it's a question worth contemplating before we make decisions about other people or throw stones. Why are people that way? Jesus doesn't speak to transgenderism. As far as we know, he doesn't encounter anyone who expresses transgenderism, at least not that the gospel writers felt important enough to record. Jesus, however, did have a very high view of marriage. He was a stickler about lust. He was strongly against divorce and even more strongly against remarriage. Things that apply to more of us than the matter of transgenderism. Not that transgenderism doesn't matter. As I've read a little bit uh, the last couple of days about transgenderism, the terms, even the terms that are used are confusing and sometimes flow in and out of each other. I'm aware that the church and older generations are often way behind in these conversations and a lot of that's by choice. We would not condemn a person who had aberrant feelings or inclinations. We should be careful about doing that in this case as well. Most of us don't know anyone who's transgender, as far as we know. And I've learned along the way that it's really important to get to know people to have friends, to engage people, to befriend people before I make decisions about them or judge them or form a, an evaluation. 24% of Americans, it's thought, know anyone who's transgender. I think that number is probably lower in the church and among Christians. So I think we would do well to engage those people, and I think that's what Jesus would do. There's the question of nurture versus nature. That's complicated. There's the matter of trauma. That many of us, most of us don't know a lot about, but has a way of making our lives very complex. We wouldn't condemn a soldier returning from war for having post-traumatic stress disorder, would we? 
or a person who's been a part of a terrible accident or witnessed a shooting or been raped. Often, I think, there is early, long ago, and deep trauma related to all of this and some things we can't necessarily put our finger on. I don't think most people choose transgender who express their identity in different ways than the scriptures describe as normative. Just like I don't think that most people who are gay chose that, at least in my generation, why would anyone ever? Why would anyone ever submit themselves to that sort of ridicule and pain in middle school and beyond? And so I think if the gospel of Jesus is not good news to trans people, then it's not good news for any of us. Do I think some of the curriculums that are being taught in school uh, now are doing a disservice to future generations of kids? I do. You don't have to, but I do. Do I think all kinds of people are made in God's image, made in the image of God, as we read about in Genesis 2? I do. All kinds of people, everyone, made in the image of God, male or female, and other complicated, made in the image of God. I don't think God retracts his image. As, we're, as we've been reading through Acts, it's been interesting on Friday mornings, where we have this uh, sort of the, the progression of Acts, this uh, Pentecost event, where all of these Jewish people hear the gospel. In the second chapter of Acts, the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, uh, magnificent things, fire above people. And all of these Jewish people hear the gospel and respond. And everyone's Jewish at the beginning. And then there are these concentric circles. And Jesus says in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we think of those concentric circles as they move through Acts as simply geographical. But when we pay closer attention, they're also cultural. And they also deal with people. Because first of all, it's Jewish people who receive the gospel and not just hear it, but receive it and embrace it and become. But along the way, next come these Samaritan kind of half-breed people whose religious faith, and then after that become the people who are called God-fearers. And then along the way, foreigners are, are invited in, Gentiles. But before they're invited in, uh, women are invited in. A magician, a sorcerer is invited in and an Ethiopian eunuch. And what is a eunuch as uh, we read and Jesus says in Matthew 19, 18? Someone who's made that way from birth or who was that way from birth or who, may, who was made that way against their will in some cases, many cases, or who occasionally may have even been voluntary. But there's a big gray area there. And yet Luke sees it as important enough in the book of Acts and in this growing that a eunuch, and you remember, a eunuch wants to be baptized, wants to know what Isaiah 53 means. Someone who has a whole different sort of sexuality and doesn't fit into the binary of male or female in a clean way that maybe most of us would be comfortable with. I was reading the scriptures this morning as part of my daily reading and uh, again ran across a, a point where Jesus says uh, to his disciples, don't be so concerned about those other people, but what about you? 
And I think Jesus says that in direct and indirect ways a number of times that it's always a good reminder for me because I'm always looking at the other people. You remember from Sermon on the Mount, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Next question. A lot of young people nowadays, and it's very similar. A lot of young people nowadays are talking about gender and sexuality and about not conforming to prior expectations. What does the Bible tell us about these people? How do we welcome them into the church without pushing them away? And my response was B. We welcome them into the church without pushing them away. Jesus shocked people of his day, and especially good people, especially religious people, and especially the religious leaders, did he not? By hanging out with people who were on the fringes, who didn't fit in, who didn't have their lives together, who were messy, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, on down and up and down the line. I haven't seen the movie Jesus Revolution yet. Anyone seen it? I've read a lot about it. Back in the 70s, there were a lot of people who didn't fit in because of the drug culture and sexuality and anti-war and a bunch of other things didn't fit into the church. But then God began to stir some churches and some Christians to consider welcoming them in as they were, as they were. We catch them, he cleans them. And what a revolution, not a perfect revolution, but what a kingdom revolution that brought about. I think generally in our culture, in our day, in our age, the world out there thinks already of Christians and the church in general as judgmental and hypocritical. And I would add to those self-righteous and condescending. That's largely our starting point today as a culture. And I think the author of this question, which begins with a statement, sees and hears our world accurately. A lot of young people nowadays are talking about gender and sexuality and about not conforming to prior expectations. Fact. And older generations and the church are way behind on this conversation. We're not in the loop and we don't want to be. Our hands are almost over our ears, but the world is moving on with or without us. That's crystal clear. So we can engage them or not, but if not, then the church will continue to get older and then cease one day to exist. That's our choice. Or we can listen to them, welcome them, engage them in conversation, invite them back to study the scriptures with us and to consider what's true and good and what our experiences have been like and what their experiences have been like, including sharing with them our failures from which we have hopefully moved on but are always in process. And then we trust God that God's spirit will lead and draw and heal. Without denying the truth, I'm inclined to err on the side of love. Every time. We are inclined to uh, push people away almost by nature and default. But three different authors, as I was thinking about it this morning, each of the, Matthew, and then John, and then Peter. Matthew records Jesus saying, see that you do not despise these little ones, for I tell you that 
Their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Perish. For God so loved the world, John wrote, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him he might be saved. And then Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. That's the God we worship, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm glad to talk more about this in the chapel afterwards. It's a complex issue that isn't well-suited to monologues. Next question, how can, should the church be more welcoming for introverts? This one is a little bit easier. Are those with social anxiety? Understand that people are different, though all made in God's image, imago Dei, when someone seems aloof or disinterested or unemotional or private, they might just be an introvert, which I believe is defined by being energized by having alone time or needing alone time, which is not uncommon. Jesus spent time alone. He made sure to carve out alone time in his life. The church shouldn't force introverts to convert to extroverts. If people want or need to stay home or be alone or come in after our greeting time and leave before the benediction, we will not condemn you for that. We wish you'd come early and stick around late and have some snacks together, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. The church should find ways for people to serve that don't involve crowds or talking. And I think we can do that. We should love our neighbors not as we want to be loved, but as they want and need to be loved. Welcome introverts. Next question, if God knows what happens in our lives before they happen, if God knows what happens in our lives before they happen, then, our li- then are our lives already decided? No, your lives are not already decided. The Bible does talk a little about predestination and about being chosen or elected. And that largely has to do with one's eternal home or salvation. Not about what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow or what job you're going to do one day, or even who you will marry, or where you will live. It may feel like those questions are really huge in our lives, but the scriptures call us to look backward as much as to look forward. We believe these seemingly contradictive things, contradicting things, that God is in complete control, and yet he has given us free will, which seem contradictory, though though are not necessarily. But where there's not free will, there isn't love. Is it true? You can't have someone be a robot and still love them. To love someone requires freedom of the will. And so God gives us freedom. And yet in retrospect, in the sovereignty of God, when we look back on our lives, we see and say, as Reformed and Presbyterian Christians, I didn't have enough goodness in me to choose God. I see now in retrospect that God chose me, that God came after me, that God was orchestrating things in his life so that I might receive him. Calvin, uh, John Calvin in the 1500s uh, raised up the doctrine of predestination or election 
not to disempower people, which is how it feels for Americans who want all of our civil rights and freedoms and to be able to choose everything we want. But Calvin's doctrine was highlighted by saying uh, in a context in which people were afraid that they would lose their salvation per the church in Rome, if you didn't do this and didn't do this and didn't do this and didn't do this. And so Calvin pulled out of scripture what Paul had said and Augustine had emphasized that God's got you, that God's in control, that God's chosen you and that God's not gonna let you go. And that was not supposed to be a doctrine of disempowerment, but a doctrine of comfort in a context of fear. Someone asked, I'm curious about how quickly Christians claim they are blessed when things go well, but I rarely or maybe never hear Christians say they are blessed when things go poorly. In a way, it seems like blessed has become a Christian-sanctioned way to brag. And interestingly, if you remember, we talked about this way back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, sort of indirectly, where Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Do you remember all of that? And some of those things aren't, don't seem so blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who suffer. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, those aren't happy moments. And so when someone translates blessed as happy inaccurately, it just doesn't make sense. Happy are the sad. Happy are those who mourn. But rather blessed means God's eyes are on you, that you have God's favor. Even in difficult times, even in the valleys, even in the hardship, a person can still be blessed. And to think that blessing is only defined by American values and the American dream is to completely miss the thrust of scripture and what it means to be in Christ, to have God's favor, to be a recipient of his grace. And so we can say we're blessed, but I would encourage you as this person probably is wrestling with, to talk of yourself as blessed when you're having a hard day too. To talk of yourself, to talk about yourself and think about yourself as blessed when things aren't going the way that you think they should, when you're sick, when you're ill, to be continually reminded that because God has come to us in Jesus and made promises to us and heals and saves and redeems and loves you for those reasons, not because your kid graduated from such and such university with straight A's magna cum laude, that's not necessarily biblically what makes one blessed but it's to have God's favor and to know that God's eyes are on one. A couple more real quickly and then uh, we'll be done. Just to get these out. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, why do, we, why do we mention the Holy Catholic Church? Also, what does the communion of saints mean? And some of us grew up uh, saying the Apostles' Creed out of this uh, old Presbyterian Maroon hymn book uh, every Sunday morning and probably didn't understand parts of it. And we would probably do well to put together a little explanation of the Apostles' Creed and leave it in the pew racks and maybe we'll do that uh, soon. Holy Catholic Church, uh, let me start with the word Catholic. Uh, it's a little c and it simply means universal or whole, W-H-O-L-E. And you'll see this word uh, sometimes in the book of Acts where uh, the whole church is talked about and everyone is drawn together. And by the end of the first century, there had, been, there had begun to be some splinters in the church. So Gnosticism and Montanism and the Marcionites were splintering off. And so it was confusing about who is the church and who isn't the church. And so they started to come up with these creeds, but whole referred to everybody. 
or universal. And so when we say the Apostles' Creed, we've changed the word Catholic to universal, which is literally what it means and all it needs. We believe in the holy Catholic Church. And actually, if Catholic means universal there, which it does, and not Roman Catholic, uh, it also means whole, as in entire, that's within the bounds of the apostolic church. And we're really saying we believe in the holy, holy Catholic church, which is a little confusing. H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-Y, holy, holy. Holy refers not to how good you are or how good I am, but that all of us together uh, are a sacred entity. And uh, we are set apart. Holy means comes from the Greek set apart, that we are together collectively a set apart people the Holy Catholic Church. The phrase communion of the saints also uh, refers uh, in some ways to a similar idea. The communion of saints, when, uh, when uh, the scholars put all of that together, refers to the church in India, the church in San Mateo, the church in Iraq, the church in Ukraine, uh, the, the church of the past, the church of the future, to the people who have passed away already and who are in God's presence or the heavens or heaven, all of that sacred assembly of people are referred to as the Holy Catholic Church. We get a little bit of an idea of that in the book of uh, Hebrews, when Paul talks about this great cloud of witnesses. It's not only those who have already passed away, but it's those who are living and will live in this fellowship or communion of the saints. And saints, again, aren't the people who are in stained glass windows in some churches but saint was uh, the word in the New Testament for all of God's people, for anyone who is in Christ. Is the Catholic Church, last question, a part of that other one, is the Catholic Church part of Christianity or is it a separate religion? Uh, no, it's not a separate religion, I would say. Uh, when we do Discover Waypoint, Discover First Pres, we talk about this and I talk about there are four big umbrellas within the umbrella of Christianity. And those umbrellas are the Orthodox Church, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, Armenian, Ukrainian. Uh, the, and that's the Eastern Church that broke off from the Roman Catholic Church or the church based in Rome in the year 1054. So broke off that umbrella of that collective of churches, Roman Catholic Church, Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox churches. And then the Protestant churches, and there are many of them began to break off in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. That's Protestants, Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, Baptists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, uh, on down the line, fall under this or under this umbrella. And then the most recent umbrella is the Pentecostal movement, which sort of began about 120 years ago, sort of. Uh, but those are the big churches under the Christian umbrella. Sometimes uh, Catholic people will uh, say, will respond, are you a Christian? And they'll say, I'm Catholic, as if they're a distinction. But most of us think of Catholics as belonging under the same big umbrella of Christianity that we do. Not that there are some things that we disagree on with the Catholics, like the authority of the church and the role of Mary, and exactly some of the books that are in the Old Testament, uh, things, a few things like that. But there's plenty of room under God's big umbrella in Christ for us to all be part of the same family and the same religion. Okay, way over time. You uh, haven't uh, fallen asleep, good for you, uh, most of you. A couple, couple of folks nodding off here. I'm gonna pray. Uh, maybe we'll pick up some questions at another time. If you wanna follow up for a few minutes about any of these things, I'll be in the chapel next door after the benediction.
we can spend a few more minutes on them. Let's pray. Thank you, uh, God, that in Christ we get to ask questions and uh, be honest and wrestle and reason. Thank you that you've given us minds and that uh, our minds are a reflection of us being made in your image. Uh, You being uh, infinitely brilliant and knowing while also being infinitely good and loving. Thank you for an opportunity to take seriously our questions. Uh, Draw us into yourself, mind, body, strength, soul, spirit, that we might belong more and more and more fully to you from our end of things. We thank you for claiming us in Christ, for dying uh, on the cross, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you, all of us who call on Jesus' name. Continue to grow us, bring about your kingdom outwardly and inwardly. Be glorified in the church and beyond the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.